0: The sounds of success vary from person to person. Over to second in time on the first double play. Success sounds like this to a Credenz soybean grower. When you pick Credenz, you get a precise variety that fits your field, a variety built to work in your soil type and conditions, with targeted traits for local pest and disease pressures. Earning the satisfaction of a successful soybean crop—that's smart. Talk to your authorized Credenz retailer or local BASF seed advisor. Always read and follow label directions.
1: Informing America's farmers and ranchers, it's Adams on Agriculture. Produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host,
2: Mike Adams. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Thank you for joining us and letting us be part of your day. And Happy New Year to all of you. We look forward to another busy year and I look forward to having you with us often here on Adams on Agriculture. Many people have said we want to turn the page on 2019 and move on to what will hopefully be a better 2020. So today we start, but we have to look back at some of the things that happened in 2019. It was, of course, a very challenging year for agriculture, weather issues and a lot of other issues such as trade. But at, towards the end of the year, at the end of uh, uh the legislative session, especially in Congress last month, there were some positive developments, some things happening at the House passing an ag labor reform bill. There were some positive developments on trade that kind of gives hope moving into this new year. I talked recently with Cam Quarles, CEO of the National Potato Council, about some of these issues that impact his industry as well as all of agriculture. And we started off uh, talking about the passage of the ag labor reform bill and why it's so important.
1: Well, the, the ag labor crisis in the, in the U.S. has been growing over uh, the last few years, and it's re- really reaching a critical level. Uh, the potato industry, we've been, as, as the pressure has gotten more intense, our, our folks have become uh, much more focused on this issue. It, really what happened this week was a landmark uh, event. The House has not been able to, to move forward with meaningful labor reform in decades. So uh, the fact that you had a strong bipartisan vote to move this thing out of the House and over to the Senate is a pretty strong signal that we think we we, we might be able to actually get something done here this, this Congress.
2: Yeah, the vote was 260 to 165 for the Farm Workforce Modernization Act, but there is uh, opposition to it. Uh, a lot of concerns have been raised. It's been labeled as an amnesty bill. How do you think that impacts it moving into the Senate?
1: Yeah, it's the, that's the challenge. Whenever you pick up ag labor reform, regardless of what you're talking about, I, I think there are some folks who, um, who who just you know philosophically have got some problems with the the, the idea that. Um, we we've got a a, a workforce here that um, uh, you know is improperly documented. They're not undocumented. They're improperly documented. Um, and how you how you deal with that those folks who are doing the work every day in a way that doesn't cause a catastrophe in American agriculture is really is really the challenge. Um, that being said, when you look at the vote this week. You had a lot of Republicans who are pretty savvy about agriculture issues realize that the, the 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 guest worker reforms that are in this bill, the enforcement measures that are in this bill, and stabilizing the current workforce, that creates a package that uh, is really going to going to generate jobs for our economy is going to deal with a crisis that is decades in the making and it's going to ensure that we never get back to this ugly situation that we're in right now where the vast majority of folks doing the 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 harvest labor the hand labor activities are just simply uh... falsely documented in u s agriculture
2: well as we've said several times many ag groups are supporting this Um the American Farm Bureau at this point is not, although the California Farm Bureau did support the bill. Now it goes to the Senate. Do you expect changes in the bill uh, in the Senate?
1: Well, that's really the key, and you know, we we uh, it's it's kind of a kind of an interesting uh, paradox that we deal with immigration much differently than we deal with a farm bill. In a in a farm bill, we start out in the House with what usually is an imperfect bill. Um, and then we send it over to the senate we we improve it at every step we shave off the rough edges that we don't like we ultimately get to a conference committee and then we send a bill to the president's desk that sets up ag policy for the next five years if we if we apply that same philosophy to immigration reform we can actually provide a solution that's durable that lasts for decades um, but I think some folks have required a perfect bill right out of the gate and when you do that you just ensure failure time and time and time again. So what we 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 want the Senate to to either take this bill up or write their own um, we're going to take the best of any pieces of those legislative uh, pieces of legislation, marry them together and send a strong bill to the president's desk. That's that's the way we're successful across a variety of different issues in D.C., and it's the only way, really, to get things done here.
2: So we'll see what happens in the Senate. We're talking with Cam Quarles, CEO of the National Potato Council. Cam, I know you, as many others are, have to be excited about what looks to be the closest we've been to getting at least a, a mini-deal, trade deal done with China in after this year-long battle of a, a trade war. It looks like it may finally be coming... Uh, partially to a close anyway, and a door opening for U.S. agriculture.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right, Mike. Um, if, we can, if we can have some positive momentum on the China front, um, backed up by we got a great deal on, uh, on, on Japan tariffs um, earlier this year. Um, now it appears that we've got USMCA heading for a, for a vote in the House for ratification. All of these signs will provide a much more uh, stable trade environment for, for potato farmers and U.S. agriculture broadly looking into to 2020. So uh, th- these are key markets for us. 20% of all the potatoes that are produced in the United States have to find a home offshore, and we want to make sure that those, those markets are open and willing to accept our uh, high-quality products around the world.
2: So 20% of U.S. potato production is for the export market. Uh, I, I don't know if the, maybe a lot of us that aren't real familiar or follow closely the potato industry might not have realized it's that high.
1: That, that, is, that, that is the case. That's um, processed products. That's also fresh. Um, and we really feel that the work that's being done in these trade agreements, they're primarily focused on tariffs. But they provide a lot of leverage to open markets more widely to, uh, to fresh potato exports, uh, to chipping potatoes. Uh, it, it, um, uh, it, it starts a bigger conversation that ultimately can lead to uh, hundreds of millions of dollars more in U.S. potato exports.
2: All right, Cam, good to talk with you. Thank you, and we'll stay in touch. Appreciate it.
1: Mike, thank you.
2: That's Cam Quarles, CEO of the National Potato Council. So, there were some positive developments, uh, as we said, towards the end of uh, 2019, but now we look to the challenges of 2020 and a lot of issues that will carry over. We'll look for the vote in the Senate on USMCA and some other key issues. Still, concerns about the RFS and how that's being handled by EPA and the administration. So, plenty of challenges, and of course, the unknown yet of the weather for 2020. We're hopeful that that it will be much better than in 2019. All right, thanks for joining us here on our New Year's Day edition of AOA. Stay with us. Much more to come. You're listening to Adams on Agriculture.
0: Some measure success by Italian suits, corner offices, and luxury yachts. Farmers measure success differently. It's breathing fresh country air, Taking care of the people you love and knowing how to measure success in your soybean acres? That's smart. With Credenz soybeans, you get a precise variety bred to fit your acres. And that Credenz variety comes with agronomic expertise and local insights from your BASF team. So plant your sign of success. Talk to your authorized Credenz retailer or local BASF seed advisor. Always read and follow label directions.
1: information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams.
2: And welcome back to Adams on Agriculture on this New Year's Day. Well, of course, we're still waiting for details on a U.S. trying to phase one trade deal, but it looks more positive. But we're still waiting to find the details. I talked about that recently with Joe Glover, Senior Research Fellow for the International Food Policy Institute.
3: Yeah, uh, but announcement. You're right. I mean, I, I let's hope this gets gets us back on track on in terms of ag trade. Um, but yeah, but it, it's trying to sort through it and kind of figure out well where is that 16 billion dollars going to come from? Um, that has a lot of us scratching our heads, I guess. But uh, uh, again, I think anything getting us back to where we were and hopefully building on that uh, will be a good thing.
2: And then there will be all the questions of um, enforcement. Will China live up to what they say they're going to do? You know, history tells us to be a little skeptical of that. But not trying to pour cold water on it, just we have to be realistic about it moving forward.
3: Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I think that, that so, you know, when I first heard of that this was going to uh, increase trade to 40 to $50 billion, I mean, you have to say first, where, where's that going to come from? And soybeans clearly has been our big, um, you know, product that we've been moving to China. About uh, more than half of our exports uh, over the last few years have been, well, prior to the trade war, at least, uh, have been, uh, you know, soybeans. But, you know, we're China's facing uh, the swine flu uh, epidemic. They're they've uh, culling hogs and and. I think people think it's going to be a, a, a few years before they they really bounce back. I think they, that, I think they may bounce back quicker than people think, but still, that that's it's not quite the market it was three years ago. And you know, we're going to face a lot of competition from Brazil for for those beans. And so, you know, how much more exports are we going to be shipping to them than what we were doing, say, in 2017? I just I don't think that that we can expect that half of that increase to get us to 40 billion is going to come from soybeans. Um so then you have to start looking at the other commodities and and China is, has said well they they're willing to um uh you know they're pointing to some of the the uh, tariff rate quotas they have for corn and and wheat and rice and suggest that that we could be helping fill some of those quotas. Those have been the quotas that have been under a lot of scrutiny, though. Uh, those were the ones that we took them to the WTO on in terms of their uh, failure to fill the quotas in the past. So, uh, again, let, let's hope this actually translates into real trade. Uh, but, but even with that, I think we're we're um, we're still looking around for well, what are the commodities that are going to get us to that that um, forty billion, fifty billion dollar mark.
2: Perhaps ethanol could be a big part of that.
3: Ethanol, I, the other thing they've mentioned are, are processed products. So, uh, you know, uh, things like baby formula, other sorts of things that are, are you know, they're important trade items. But the, but i got to tell you, the farm value of that is pretty small. So uh, ethanol would be a big one. Um, certainly with the swine fever, they're, they need meat um and and so shipping more pork to them would be an important uh uh for our industry um uh poultry beef any of those things uh more dairy i mean there there's a lot of items that we could be shipping them um but again trying to get all that up to 40 to 50 billion dollars without a lot more soybeans in that mix uh i is, is going to be a bit of a challenge but again mike i mean I, you know uh it, my, my main issue is, well, the, the overall number may be a little inflated, but, but I think it's very positive we can get back to a normal trading relationship with them.
2: That's good news indeed. We're talking with Joe Glober, Senior Research Fellow with the International Food Policy Institute. All right, Joe, it looks like the House a vote on USMCA this week, the Senate next month. Um you know, some people say, "Hey, this isn't much different than NAFTA." Others point to some improvements uh, for agriculture, like in dairy, perhaps in poultry. What's your overall sense? It seems like, if nothing else, it gives us certainty moving forward.
3: Yeah, I and I and I. That's where I would come down to. I look. I, I don't think there's a lot here that wasn't certainly wasn't in TPP. Uh, so there is a little more dairy. Uh, the poultry, there, there may be a little more poultry there. The uh, um, uh, but but the big thing is it's it's you know remember we went into the that first year of the administration with with the president saying that we should pull out of NAFTA and, and that would be a disaster. So I think to the degree that this moves us on beyond that and and uh, um, uh, again, it is a little like China, I think in my view that that you know, Putting NAFTA behind us and, and letting us move on uh, uh, is a good thing. So, um, uh, yeah, I hope we get a vote on that in the House and, and move on to the Senate, and then, um, then, and again, hopefully see some something some improvement in the trade war with China.
2: We include the Japan deal, and we certainly on a, on the trade front, we're ending 2019 much better than we started it
3: yeah no that's that's right and and I think that, that it's all good news in, in that regard um uh we we there's still a lot of i mean remember we got into the trade war with China not over agriculture i mean yes we 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 had issues like approvals of gmos and 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 improvements in that whole process but the the bigger issues that have loomed out there on business practices and intellectual property protection and other things are still very much uh, uh issues and so uh, we'll, we'll see how all that uh, those neg- neg- negotiations and so called phase 2 go
2: joe glober former usda chief economist now senior research fellow for the international food policy institute also we had action recently at the end of the year as the house voted to approve the ag labor reform bill i talked about that with jim bear president and ceo of the u.s apple association he says this is not an amnesty bill
4: well let's talk about uh what it is and what it isn't and uh, i would say what it's what the bill is not is is amnesty. For those ag workers, whether they be in uh, confined animal feeding operations, dairies, fruit and vegetable production, uh, for those ag workers that are here illegally currently, they'd have to pay a significant fine to get right with the law, and then they would have to commit to continue working in ag from four to eight years uh, beyond what they've been here so far. And we see that In the Senate, uh, there are already a couple of uh, people that are ready to step forward and introduce a a, a companion bill. It won't be the same as the House bill. We think it'll be a little bit friendlier to agriculture, uh, to be honest. But the fact that in this superheated political environment that uh, a bipartisan group of Republicans and Democrats could come together and and pass a, a bill through the House that would help agriculture in this way, I think it's just a bit of a miracle, to tell you the truth.
2: So we'll see what happens on the Senate side. Meanwhile, you have to be encouraged with uh, the late developments on trade. We'll start with USMCA.
4: Yeah, that's been a a two-and-a-half-year battle, and as you and I have discussed before, Mike, uh, I've been doing this a long time, and I've never seen agriculture come together in the way that it has over those those last two years to get USMCA across uh, the finish line. It was... uh, it was important to keep that North American market open, and despite what some people would say about NAFTA for agriculture, NAFTA was the worst—not not the worst deal in history. It was the best trade deal in history. In the case of apples, we quadrupled our exports to Mexico, we doubled our exports to Canada, and so we already had a full, wide-open market in North America. A lot of investments had been made based on that growth, that business. Uh, model, and so keeping that market
2: open was critical. And then with the prospects now looking better than ever on a new deal with China, you've told us before that's important to apple growers.
4: It is, and uh, producers of many commodities in the U.S., including apples, we look at China as a huge growth market. We had worked for years, many years, to get that market open. We got it opened in uh, 2015. And uh, in 36 months, it became our number six export market. And importantly, they were uh, the importers in China were buying our top quality varieties at premium prices, which is what everybody in the business wants, is to sell your best product at the best price. Uh, so the retaliatory tariffs that China put on our product in response to our tariffs from the U.S., that really pumped the brakes. And that was disappointing because we were really looking forward to, to uh, growing that market. So hopefully we can get back into doing what U.S. agriculture does best, and that's take advantage of all of our natural efficiencies and all the modern uh, tools and economies of scale that we have, and and get back in the business of supplying those markets with our best products.
2: Jim Bear, President and CEO of the U.S. Apple Association. Stay with us. Much more to come here on AOA on this New Year's Day.
0: The sounds of success vary from person to person. Success sounds like this to a Credence soybean grower. Along with 43 new varieties this year, Credenz soybeans come with agronomic expertise from BASF. That means expert advisors who bring local insights on seed selection, management decisions, and crop protection options. Knowing the kind of success you're shooting for? That's smart. Talk to your authorized Credenz retailer or local BASF seed advisor. Always read and follow label directions.
1: Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on
0: Agriculture. Now
2: back to Mike Adams. So the biofuels industry thought it had a deal with the administration on handling small refinery exemptions and the RFS, but turns out they didn't. Let's talk about it with Robert White, Vice President, Industry Relations for the Renewable Fuels Association. Robert, thanks for joining us. Obviously very disappointing news uh, and you know, it looks like, uh, you know, it's not going to be uh, a good outcome on this, at least for the time being. It looks like more business as usual with the EPA having discretion on the, these small refinery exemptions.
5: Yeah, you nailed it on the head, Mike. Thanks for having me. It it, it was uh, disappointing. Uh, another disappointment for 2019. I think uh, all of us in ethanol and maybe even agriculture are ready to put this year to bed. But... A couple months back, we had a nice uh, agreement come out of the White House with the president. Uh, Senators Grassley, Ernst, and others were in that meeting. Everyone was very happy that the reallocation conversation was centered around actual wave gallons. But so when this proposal came out, this supplemental proposal came out, it was all hinged on recommendations from Department of Energy, not actual allocated gallons. Now, the hypocrisy here is, EPA itself has not followed these DOE recommendations and therefore that meant about, well, a little less than half of the actual granted waivers would be reallocated and nothing from previous years. So it, it is a, another shot to the gut, especially when you thought you were going to gain some traction and help curb future SREs.
2: What do you think happened? I mean, it, I mean, when you have Senators Grassley and Ernst uh, thinking there's a deal, uh, and then you know they're blindsided by this too. What do you think happened?
5: Well, I don't know if there's truly a disconnect between 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue and the uh, office of the Administrator over at the Environmental Protection Agency, or if there's more to this. I mean, we really just don't know. Um, but it, it has been crystal clear from Administrator Wheeler. Uh, Secretary Purdue, as early as last week when he was in Nebraska, that 15 billion gallons of conventional biofuels, in this case ethanol, was going to be 15 billion gallons, and that is just not the case. If you don't reallocate the wave gallons that are subtracted from 15 billion gallons and replace them with half of uh, basically what DOE recommended you do in the first place, uh, there's just no way you can get to 15
2: and they're asking you to trust EPAs ha- to handle this uh, correctly. Well, they haven't so far.
5: Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure uh, Sure, any of us would uh, take someone's word uh, in our personal lives that's been dealt these kind of cards over the last year and actually the last three years under the current administration. But I, I think at the end of the day, um, you know, there there were other parts to this deal that we still haven't seen as well. There were... Uh, changes in the E15 labeling laws. There were uh, some, some hopefully, some reduction in the survey requirements that is uh, pitched to E15 to be legal in the marketplace. And then, of course, USDA had an infrastructure program that there was a meeting as, as early as yesterday about it. But again, those three things are just more examples of promises made months ago that haven't come to fruition at least yet today.
2: Talking with Robert White with the Renewable Fuels Association. So that's disappointing. Uh, let's look back at 2019, though. Uh, you got approval for uh, E15. Let's review the year. Uh, are you seeing growth in E15 availability and sales across the country? Oh, I'm, so, I'm sorry, yeah. E85. E85, I'm sorry.
5: Yes, and it would be true of E15 as well. Uh, but mm-hmm. for E85, we've actually seen a little over one station a day open this year uh 300 and you know make me look uh 376 new stations in 2019 and obviously got a few days left in the year uh, so again that's another great year for e85 it's going into areas that typically have not seen it before so it's not a fuel that's been around since 1996 for them it's a fuel that just arrived and what's this new fuel and do i have a flex fuel vehicle uh e15 kind of the same boat uh it's uh, ramp up was not quite as great as I would have expected after year-round approval back in late May, uh, but this, it has been steady, and we have commitments from you know, hundreds of, if not, well, thousands of, of actual stations that have committed to add E15, and we talk to new groups each day that are looking at it as they do renovations or upgrades or need to replace uh, dispensers next year for credit card compliancers. There's, there's all sorts of opportunities out there, and I think that will continue. Uh, but it's, it's a dogfight along the way. You know, the, the major petroleum companies continue to block in their franchise and supply agreements. They continue to put pressure on the terminal operators to not stock it. Uh, this fight will not end, Mike, but uh, unfortunately, uh, well, fortunately, it's one that we continue to make traction in. But unfortunately, it's not going to be overnight success by any means.
2: and it's still after all these years we've been through this for so long uh you know robert uh, we've seen the 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 fear campaigns waged by the oil industry trying to scare motorists away from using uh back in the day it was e10 now it's e15 saying it's going to be harmful to their cars to their vehicles and things like that i mean there's just so much misinformation still being spread
5: there is and uh it started with a bang for sure with uh, the the automakers even being a part of the initial introduction of E15 because they weren't involved in that process and, and weren't supportive of, of retroactive approval. But we've come a long way. The autos have, have approved E15, obviously EPA back to 2001 and newer vehicles, and that's over 93% of all vehicles on the road. So the market is vast and, and a lot of opportunity for fuel retailers to market that product. You know, appropriately, but what we try and do, uh, at least at the Renewable Fuels Association, is, is we're trying to limit that negative disposition before they get to the, the pump. We're not trying to convince them at the pump to use, use ethanol. Uh, we hope that the economic incentive there and the labeling will do that on its own. What we're trying to, to help fight back is the misinformation campaigns before they even get there. And again, they're well-funded. We always anticipate more than $70 million a year in anti-ethanol efforts, whether that be from the boats, the motorcycles, or food manufacturers, whatever it is. Uh, It it is a dogfight that is all about market share, uh, the price of bushel for corn, and uh, not one I expect to end anytime soon.
2: When you talk with a retailer about carrying higher ethanol blends, what's the biggest Challenge. I mean, I think you can show in markets where it's being sold, it's it's been well received by motorists, um, even with the the misinformation that's out there. You're offering a quality product at a discounted price. You would think that would be very appealing to a retailer, but there must be something holding them back. Is it the uh, the initial cost of of, of making the uh, structural changes, or what is it?
5: Well, each station is different, of course. There are uh, different equipment setups for each station, so I always have to say it depends. But even the large retailers' access to capital is much different than it used to be, uh, especially since the recession. But on the other end of the spectrum, 62.5% of all gas stations in our country are single station owners. So those stations own, or those station owners only have one station under the belt. So imagine their access to capital when the net income average for all gas stations is only $37,500. So there's there's just not a lot of money in selling fuel. But when we can come in with the approach that here's a higher octane, lower carbon for some areas, but lower price is as important as anything. And we will help you get more customers to add to your margin and overall volume and then get them in the store where they actually make their money. But that in fir- first investment, especially if it's E85, uh, some E15 stations have had to do little work, but it's all about that initial expense. Uh, we had good news this this week with a tax extenders bill. The alternative uh, fuel vehicle refueling property credit was in there. That's a credit for up to 30% of expenses, up to $30,000 for those that put in E85. And as I had mentioned earlier, USDA is still working on an infrastructure program Kind of like the biofuels infrastructure partnership program we had previously. So hopefully a few hundred million dollars in injection and capital for those fuel retailers to add, but uh, that's really the first step. And uh, you got to get in the door one and then convince them that this is money well spent, not only for today, but to help them future proof their stations for tomorrow.
2: We're seeing a push in South Dakota for our higher blends, E20, E30. Do uh, you think we'll see that uh, that movement catch on in the coming year?
5: Well, I mean, to be honest, Mike, we're still still having problems with E15, as we just discussed. I I think there's a lot of work and a lot of potential with that mid-level blend, and and maybe even a, an advanced engine down the road. Uh, I know uh, there's a lot of folks that are pushing E30 and conventional vehicles. We're just not there yet. We have to have EPA's blessing on that for it to be legal, and it's hard to push down the consumers to to do something that is in uh, direct opposition of what the federal government's telling them.
2: Mm-hmm. Now, you did see a break this year in the opening up of New York. That's an that's a key state, obviously.
5: Oh, that's yeah. That's that's uh, the maybe as big a win as the year-round E15. Uh, definitely in the short term, New York is the fourth largest gasoline market in the world or in the country. It's one I I have a hard time every time I read that or say that. It doesn't sound right to me. I think of the warmer states like California, Florida, Texas and others. But New York is number four in consumption. And so as we move more E15 and E85 into that state, uh, E85 had some good success the last three years. But with E15 uh, starting to make some win there, I think it'll be another. great win and good state well uh, we have some good traction happening in california uh, for sure a couple of years away but uh, no doubt uh, the number one uh, fuel consumption state out there and we're trying to make sure they have opportunities with e15 and higher blends as well
2: all right robert uh, some challenges still remain but that's always the case but we'll hope for a, a better year in 2020 thank you very much always good to talk with you we'll see you again soon thanks mike Take care. Robert White, Vice President, Industry Relations for the Renewable Fuels Association, joining us here on AOA.
1: Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams.
2: Welcome back to Adams on agriculture and joining us now is the president of scale tech, Nick von Munster. We want to talk about uh, a way that uh, can hopefully speed up your planting time. We know that the uh, planting windows seem to be getting shorter and shorter every year. Uh, we know that the, uh, You know, using bigger equipment allows more ground to be covered in a shorter period of time. But how can we make that planting time even more efficient So, what we're going to talk about today. Nick, thank you for joining us. Um, So what you're saying is a scale on that planter can can help speed things up even more.
6: Right. Yeah. You know, when it comes to field operations, um, planting and all the logistics, they go with that in a field. Having a scale just adds one more element into um, what I like to call situational awareness. Um, you know, in the in the field, whether that's knowing how much weight or how much product you've got in the planter, or even how much product you've got outside the planter, you know, waiting to fill.
2: Yeah, so let's kind of break this down. There's are several areas here. Let's start with better seed inventory management. How how does the scale on the uh, on the planter help with that?
6: Well, with the, you know with with a lot of custom operators out there planting today, also you know with the, the your own owner operator planting, um, knowing how much you need to fill in that planter is becoming more crucial um, as the seed varieties and, and the hybrids and that technology progresses, um, you're going to want to know per prescription um, what and how much you need to plant for that field. So knowing the inventory that you need to fill exactly in that planter before moving on to another um, field, there's value in having a scale system there so you get exactly what inventory you're looking to put on that field the first time
2: and then a more precise uh, fill of seed in, into the hopper or the box that obviously is going to be beneficial
6: correct so you know there's there's a couple different types of planters there's a bulk fill or a central fill system um which you know feeds the individual row units um on a on a planter or even a drill um and and then there's the individual um units um on a on a conventional planter the row units that you sow as well. Um, there's there's different methods to use. We don't we don't necessarily have a scale system for the individual row planter, but having a seed tender with a scale on it can provide you just as much inventory awareness as well on your planter.
2: And all this brings about more efficiency in the use of your tractor and your planter.
6: Correct. Yeah. So if you're um, if you're planting. You know, in in the effect of waiting on someone to bring you seed, efficiency and time management in the field um, is is a big a big game game changer. Especially, you know, with the weather conditions we've been having over the last two years, uh, waiting an hour for seed to be delivered to you that can be the difference between getting a field fully planted and waiting two weeks to finish.
2: Well, time is so critical at planting time. I, I would think this would allow quicker rate adjustments, too.
6: Right, and that's more specific to um, seed, um, seed drills, uh, whether it's a box drill or an air seed drill. Adjusting the rate on your drills, um, you know, when we initially created a scale system to go on a drill, it was actually off of our own need on our own farm, and this was 20 years ago on a John Deere 750 uh, no-till drill we would darn near get to the end of that field or at least three-quarters of that field and finally get the rate dialed in but we would waste a lot of seed We we would either waste a lot of seed or we'd have way too much seed left over in the drill by the time we got done with the scale system you can go plant a few acres come to a stop and see exactly how many how much weight or pounds you've expended from the drill and then make your adjustments knowing exactly how much you've put in so Literally, as you go into the field, within the first five acres, you'll have everything dialed in to the rate that you need it.
2: Would the, your scale system also allow for faster switching among varieties?
6: Yes. So, you know, as we, as you move from field to field and with the different varieties and hybrids that are available out there, instead of cleaning out your planter, planting exactly what you intend to put on that field and not having to clean your planter out um creates a whole lot of time savings there. Uh, you don't have to pull out the shop vac. You don't have to drop it into a, uh, another bag or a, a bucket just to clean up the, the planter or the drill. It's uh, You're putting on exactly what you intend to put on in the field.
2: So how can farmers get more information, learn more about your scale tech uh, system?
6: Sure. Um, you can go onto our website uh, www.scale-tec or tech or you can just give us a call at 888-962-2344.
2: I would thank Nick um, that this is a greater interest all the time because it seems like there are very few uh, Springtime planting times, where everything is just ideal, and you got you feel like you got plenty of time. It, it seems more like that that window is, uh, is shorter all the time, and and ever, everyone trying to get more done in a in a shorter period of time than ever before.
6: Yes, you know, I, from experience, our family we farm 550 acres, so not a whole lot, but um, you know, we we're still out there harvesting today because uh we ran into weather issues this spring and it becomes very critical um you know for planting dates very critical to get your seed in the ground um in in the appropriate amount of time and what we're experiencing today is a 15 to 20 bushel yield loss because of the planting dates that we had last spring so every little bit helps any piece of technology to give you that situational awareness inside the field, uh, it's time savings, it's also cost savings, and it's a yield bump, um, you know, throughout the year, if you can get that seed in the ground, time effective.
2: That's Nick von Munster, president of Scale Tech. Nick, thanks for joining us.
6: Yeah, thanks. And
2: thank you for joining us today here on AOA Adams on Agriculture.